All right, thank you, Lisa. And I can testify on her behalf. I was there twice with her, and she gave glory to God. In fact, one lady at the escrow company, they were asking us, they said, uh, so uh, how long have you guys been married? And we said, almost 33 years. And they said, 33 years married to the same person? And, and I said, yeah, it actually is possible. And uh, they said, what's your secret? And Lisa said, do you really want to know? And she says, yes. And she says, it's God. We put God at the center of our marriage. And that just started a whole, a whole conversation that they love. So uh, she did a great job sharing our Lord out there in the community. Hey, uh, this bag is a reminder that last week we started a food drive, and it's to support the, the ministry of the Redwood Gospel Mission. I just went downstairs, and I saw dozens of bags that are filled. So thank you for all of you who participated in that. Uh, we're running it a few more days uh, we can pick them up and take them over to the gospel mission, even if you don't get your bag in today. So if uh, procrastination is your middle name, there's still time for you to, to get this done and to fill a bag. So please uh, go ahead and do that. Hey, we are on a series now called Jesus Is. Uh, we started a few weeks ago with Jesus' winemaker and how he performed his very first miracle, turning water into wine. The second one, we talked about Jesus being truth. We talked about Jesus being a healer last week and how he healed everybody that he came into contact with and that how God even continues to heal today. What I want to focus on uh, in today's message is a, is a different title, a title that might be a little controversial, a title that you might even say, I don't know if I even agree with that one, but uh, we're going to talk today about Jesus is party animal. Jesus is a party animal. I want to ask you guys a question. What is the best party that you've ever been to? Now, some of you may think back and say, oh, I don't know if I should feel good about that party or not, because it might be uh, the same answer if you said, what's the best party you've been to, and what's the worst party you've been to? And you said, it was the same one, actually. Uh, depending on what happened at that party, et cetera, et cetera, I remember a very good party that I went to uh, as my senior year, as high school uh, career was finishing up, and I had become a Christian in the beginning of my senior year. We were invited by a friend, my brother Jeff and I, to go down to Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa, where uh, the famous Pastor Chuck Smith was preaching, and I believe it was a Saturday night service. They had this Christian rock concert, which I came there, and for the very first time in my life, I listened to Christian rock music, which I thought even the term was an oxymoron. Uh, how, the, the, the two just didn't seem to go together because the church where I was attending periodically was playing organ music in wooden pews with no padding <laughs> and stained glass windows, and it was like, it was like going into a time machine. Uh, uh, as we were going to church on Sunday. So we had this Christian rock music, and a guy came up to preach, and I, I gave my life to the Lord. And uh, it just so happened in God's providence that he brought somebody onto our Troy High School campus. His name was Dave Cora. He was with Campus Crusade for Christ. And he gathered a bunch of uh, young people together, and we started this club on campus called Campus Crusade for Christ on campus. And by the end of that year, he had trained us into how to share our faith in Jesus with other people, how to lead other people into a saving relationship with Jesus. And we decided that at the end of that high school year, we were going to throw a party. And we invited this Christian punk band 
uh, which that really did exist at the time. Southern California is amazing with the Jesus movement and all the things that it spawned. Uh, one of the good things was Christian rock music. We also had Christian punk bands where you didn't really know when they were singing the songs if they were angry or if they were happy. It just sort of like... Uh, one of the songs was, you'll have to excuse us, we're in love with Jesus. But, but they did it, you know, and they did this kind of a cool punk beat really fast, but the guy was kind of screeching into the microphone, and I was like, dude, you know, chill, chill out, you know. But we got in, we, we, there was a person in our high school group, her, uh, her name was Kim, and she lived up on the hill with all the well-to-do people in our, in our city of Fullerton. And uh, this was a well-to-do home, one of the richest homes I've ever been in. And in the backyard, they had a Japanese garden. They had a tennis court. Uh, the son, uh, when he was going to Troy, was a pole vaulter. And his dad built an entire pole vault running ramp and a pole vault pit in the backyard for him so he could practice at home. He ended up breaking the Troy High School record for pole vaulting. He should. He had plenty, he had plenty of chance to practice. And uh, on the tennis courts, we had this band uh, called Undercover, and they sang these songs about Jesus, and we witnessed, and we shared the Lord with people from our high school that came. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of joy. It was a lot of celebration, and it brought a lot of people uh, into an awareness of what it means to follow Jesus. Now, Jesus, when he came into his ministry... And when he started uh, to preach and to teach and to heal, I really believe that Jesus, when he was doing his ministry, that he was full of joy. You see Jesus frequently being invited to weddings and parties and dinner events. And uh, it just seems that Jesus liked hanging out with all different kinds of people. And it, it, to me, it, doesn't it seem strange a little bit that a holy God would want to spend time with these holy, undesirable sinners. You know, when you think of God, and I remember my view of God was He was holy, and He was morally perfect, and He was ruling from the heavens. But uh, what did He want to do with little old Jim, or sinner Jim, or guy who, who uh, follows God half the time and doesn't follow God the other half of the time? Why would God even want to know uh, somebody like me, or know people that He knows are sinners and undesirables? And so it seemed a little bit ironic that a holy God would want to hang out with people like that. But when you read the Gospels, when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these biographical accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus, what you notice in there is that the people who were least like Jesus, they were the people who liked Jesus the most. And the religious leaders who supposedly were trying to leave, lead these holy, separate lives Unto God, they seem to be the people that like Jesus the least. I, th does that not strike you as a little bit funny or ironic? It sh certainly did to me. The religious attitude of the people of that day, when you look in Luke's gospel in chapter 15, it says, tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. They were the guys that seemed to be attracted to Jesus. And, it said, and the reaction of the religious leaders of the day in verse 2 says a lot about what was inside their heart. In fact, Jesus always said this, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You can tell what's inside of somebody by what comes out of their mouth. 
can't you? Sometimes they're spewing venom, they're spewing negativity, they're spewing complaining and grumbling, or they're, they're, uh, they're spewing, they're sharing joy, or they're sharing confidence in God, or they're sharing hope for the future. You can tell a lot about somebody by what comes out of their mouth. Look what came out of these religious leaders' mouth. It says they complained that Jesus was associating with such sinful people. He was even eating with them. He was eating with these terrible sinners, and that really bothered the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Apparently, Jesus had a reputation. Jesus was a party animal. He liked to go to parties, and not because there was wild living or lascivious behavior at these parties. He liked to go to parties because there were people there, people that might have been far away from God who needed a touch from God, who needed to know that God loved them and cares about them. People needed to know that God loved them dearly. Let's look at an example of a party that Jesus went to. This is in Luke's Gospel, chapter 5. I think on your bulletins it says that we're going to be in Matthew chapter 8 and 9. There is a similar story in a parallel uh, passage in Matthew 9, but we're going to focus on Luke chapter 5 today, the calling of Matthew, the disciple who used to be a tax collector. So we go to Luke chapter 5, uh, and we're going to see a party that Jesus attended. His name is Matthew. He was also called Levi. The setting is that Jesus had just done this amazing miracle. Jesus had finished teaching what I told you guys a week ago was probably his most famous sermon, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said to you this, but I say to you that. You think following God is like this, but I'm telling you following God is like that. And it says that people were amazed at Jesus' teaching. He taught as one who had authority and not like the religious leaders of the day. So Jesus has this great time of teaching, and then he comes off the Sermon of the Mount, and he starts healing people, and then he's in the city of Capernaum, and he starts walking down the street, and he comes across this tax collector booth, this table where somebody named Matthew was sitting at, and let's see what happened. As Jesus left the town, he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus said, and be my disciple. And so Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. So they're in this town of Capernaum. Capernaum became Jesus' center of operations during his ministry. Matthew worked in that town, and I don't think it was the first time that Matthew and Jesus encountered each other. I think Matthew had a real curiosity about Jesus. I think that he had heard of some of Jesus' teaching. I would even suspect that in the crowds that Jesus taught that Matthew was sort of uh, quietly walking around in the very back, uh, trying not to be noticed because everybody knew that he was a tax collector and he was working for the Romans. He was probably hated by most of the Jewish people. So he was a very unpopular guy in the Jewish crowds, but he's, he's in the back of the crowd and he's listening to Jesus' teaching. Perhaps Matthew even witnessed a few of Jesus' miracles of healing people or casting people out of demons who were being demonized. And so Matthew had this attraction already to Jesus. What I think probably surprised Matthew the most in this encounter with Jesus, what caught him off guard was now Jesus is at the front of the table where Matthew's working Jesus is talking to him face to face, and Jesus is now inviting him to leave his career and become Jesus' full-time disciple. 
I can imagine Matthew's reaction. What? I mean, Jesus, why me? Why me? You see me sitting here at this tax collecting table. You know what I do for a living, right? Matthew was collecting taxes for the Romans. And you might get the wrong idea that Matthew was like some pencil-pushing guy at H&R Block, you know, just with a calculator and a pencil. And all I'm here to do is, you know, let's calculate your taxes and see what you owe, and then you turn it into the IRS and stuff. That was not the way it worked back then. Matthew was not an IRS pencil pusher. Matthew was probably more like Tony Soprano from the Mafia. He was probably an arm twister and, and perhaps an arm breaker if he needed to be because somewhere in Matthew's work history, he decided that he was going to turn his back on his own Jewish people and he was going to join the other team. He was going to go into cahoots with the Romans and because he did that and began to collect taxes for the Romans, most of the Jewish people in that town, in that area, probably hated him for doing what he did. I'm sure he was kicked out of the local synagogue if he was going there. I'm sure Matthew at the time was not very proud of his work. Maybe he got into it for the money or for greed. But by the time he encountered Jesus, I'm sure Matthew was sick of his own profession. He was he was sorry for what he was doing, and he was looking for a change. And then Jesus gives him a way out. Jesus invites a social outcast like Matthew to follow him full time. Wow, what an honor, and how unexpected for Matthew. And I can imagine Matthew's face going from surprise and shock and almost disbelief to joy and say, you're inviting me to follow you full time? Okay, I am in. And Matthew is now ecstatic to leave this outcast employment and join Jesus' band of followers. I can't imagine walking into the band of Jesus' followers, you know. Same town where Matthew works, where he was hated by most everybody. Here's Peter, Andrew, fisherman, probably the, some of the guys that Matthew had to arm twist into paying some taxes to Rome. Yeah, some other guys there, and it's like Jesus says, hey, everybody, this is Matthew, and he's joining our team. And I can imagine those guys, this guy? Seriously, Jesus? You know, they had Peter and John and Andrew and James, they had to learn a lot of grace with somebody like Matthew. But Matthew's life was changed. His, he was transformed by the grace of Jesus. We know that because it says in verse 29, later, Matt, later Levi, Matthew, same person, held a banquet in his home with Jesus as the guest of honor. So now Matthew is throwing a party to celebrate his career change, and he invites all of his friends to the party. Can you, you think his friends would have been the rabbi of the, local, of the local synagogue? You think they would have been the religious leaders of the day? They wouldn't have anything to do with Matthew. So who's Matthew inviting? The tax collectors, fellow workers of Rome, all the notorious sinners in town. Those were probably the only people that Matthew could hang out with. Those were the people that Matthew invited to this party with Jesus as the guest of honor. And so they were also eating with Jesus and Jesus' followers. And of course, there's a reaction from the religious leaders watching Jesus do what he did, being a party animal. And so it says that uh, the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law, they complain bitterly bitterly to Jesus' followers. You know, when somebody just has that bitterness and that complaining and that criticism and that tearing other people down attitude, nobody really wants to be around a person like that. And they said to Jesus, they didn't even say it directly to Jesus' face, you cowards. 
They said it to Jesus' disciples, and they said, Why do you eat and drink with such scum? That's the word that we have in the New Living Translation. I think scum was short for tax collectors and notorious sinners. Why, Jesus, why do you hang around these scum? You're a religious rabbi. You're a teacher. You heal people. You teach people the way of God. Why are you going after people like this? So Matthew's in this massive redirection in his life. He celebrates. He wants to have all of Jesus' friends to know about this decision he makes. And he has them to have, he, he wants his friends to have the same desire to know this God of grace and this teacher Jesus that Matthew has just come to know and love. And so Matthew wants them to meet Jesus. Come to this party in Jesus' honor. Be able to meet Matthew's friends. He wouldn't have had any socially upstanding friends. His friends would most likely be outcasts like him. And so now we see Jesus' choice of friends, how it draws a severe criticism from the religious leaders, uh, the Pharisees of the religious law. They're saying, why do you eat and drink with such scum? You know, I hear that question. Why do you eat with such scum? And that just sounds to me so harsh, so judgmental. I take it to mean that these upstanding religious leaders, they didn't want to sully their lives. They didn't want to dirty themselves by hanging around and interacting with these, quote, tax collectors and sinners. You know, here's the great thing about Jesus in contrast to the religious leaders of his day. Jesus doesn't put labels like that on people. He doesn't call anybody scum. He doesn't call anybody, uh, you know, notorious sinners or somebody who's maybe not worthy to be in a relationship with God. The only label that I might say that Jesus would put on people is that every person that Jesus locks eyes with, that person has infinite value to God. That person matters to God. God dearly loves them, and Jesus wants them to know that. And so there's nobody that wants to hang out with Jesus that Jesus is not willing to hang out with, and that's what makes him a party animal. I want to illustrate that in the modern era. In 2017, there is a uh, young man who is one of our heroes. His name is Tim Tebow. Used to be a football player. Now he is uh, a minister. I think he's trying to make a career in baseball as well. We'll see where that goes. But, but that's not the main thing Tim Tebow does. The main thing he does is he's a follower of Jesus, and he likes to share faith, hope, and love wherever he goes. Tim Tebow has come up with this idea called a night to shine. It's a prom night for those who have special needs, and I want you to see it on the screen.
of what they did in A Night to Shine. In all 50 states and in, in other cities across the world, including the uh, country in East Africa, Kenya, they did this Night to Shine. They had a prom night for people who had special needs. And they let people know who are on the margins of society and might be forgotten, probably never would have had a chance to go to a dance like that. Teenagers growing up feeling left out. And Tim Tebow says, I want you to know that God loves you. And, and so they were going to have these dances. And our daughter, Christina, and son-in-law, Craig, they were with us this week. They go to a church in Corona called Crossroads Christian Church. And that church hosted one of the Night to Shine in February 10 of this year. And Craig said it was one of the greatest times he's had. And, and seeing the joy on these people's faces when they, they realize that they matter to God and they matter to these people. And they had a, a wonderful time. Uh, to have a party together. So let's see, uh, let's continue the story because I want you to see Jesus' reaction. I want you to see what a, uh, the Bible says that a gentle answer turns away wrath. You, you hear the venom and, and the complaining and the criticism of the Pharisees when he says, why does your teacher eat and drink with such scum? And if I were Jesus and I had that righteous anger, I would say, you know, somebody ought to take a flamethrower to this place with the attitude that you guys are having. But Jesus did not have that attitude. He didn't even react in anger. He reacted with educating them and saying, do you really want to know what God is like? I'm going to tell you what God is like. He says, Jesus answered them and he said, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but I've come to call those who know that they are sinners and that they need to repent. Wow, what a gracious response to some very ungracious people. Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. And the truth is, for all of us human beings, if we're honest with ourselves and with God, we all know that we have this general malaise. We have this sickness called sin. We've all missed the mark of God's holiness. We've all strayed from the right path. To some degree, people are known as sinners. If, we're, if we call ourselves sinners, it's, it's just because we're being honest about our condition before God. It's the self-righteous people, the ones that are trying to make themselves something that they're not really on the outside, that they're not truly on the inside. It's the self-righteous people that tend to minimize their own sins and even deny that they're sinners at all. Jesus actually found the self-righteous people, they were the hardest to reach. And for us here in the church, let's be known. Let's be known for what Jesus is known for. Let's be known as this hospital for sinners rather than this museum for these wannabe saints. Amen? Let's be a hospital for the sinners because that's where sick people need to go to get well. And we know that Jesus can make them well. You know, part of the way that a Pharisee would 
prove his commitment to God, prove his devotion to God was to stay away from wild and irreverent people who he thought were very far from God. Just steer clear of them, keep yourself clean. The Pharisees weren't too concerned about, about these sinners because they didn't want them, the sinners to contaminate them. Whereas Jesus, in contrast, rather than feeling, quote, contaminated by these sinners, Jesus was more interested in infecting them with himself and his message of hope and love and reconciliation and new life if they were to join God's kingdom family. So Jesus declares here, you know where I would rather spend my time? I'd rather spend my time with them than with you, you Pharisees. Later on in Luke's gospel, after reaching another social outcast, one of the chief tax collectors in his region of Jericho, a man named Zacchaeus, Jesus, when he saw the transformation in Zacchaeus' life, Jesus declared this. He says, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Let's jump forward to Luke's gospel. Uh, we were in chapter 5. Let's jump forward 10 chapters to chapter 15 now. Jesus is getting criticism again from these Pharisees and religious leaders. He says they criticized him for, quote, associating with such despicable people and even eating with them. Jesus, you party animal. You, you know, they thought that he was contaminating himself by being around people like that. And so in response to this unjust, unfounded criticism, Jesus tells three stories. The most famous story is, of course, the parable of the prodigal son. I'm not going to focus on that today. I want to focus on the first two stories, the story of the lost sheep and the story of the lost coin. The first one is about a shepherd. He's caring for a hundred sheep. He's counting them up, and he sees that one of his sheep has gone astray. One of them is lost. And so what does the shepherd do? He leaves the 99. He goes out searching for that lost sheep. And when he finds it, which means that shepherd kept on looking diligently until he found that lost sheep. And it says, and now look at the reaction of the shepherd. This is the point that Jesus is driving at. The reaction of the shepherd is when he finds that lost sheep, he puts the sheep up on his shoulders, puts the sheep around him and joyfully carries it home. And it says, and when the shepherd or when you arrived, if you found that lost sheep, it says, you would call together all your friends and neighbors and you would rejoice because your lost sheep was found. And now Jesus says in the same way, talking about this is how you'd feel if you found a lost sheep. How do you think heaven reacts when somebody turns around to God? And it says in the same way, heaven will be happier over one lost sinner who turns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and have not strayed away. So Jesus, is, his focus is here is on this joyful celebration when a lost sheep is found. The second story is very similar. Except instead of being out in the field with sheep, you're now in a household with a woman and her 10 silver coins. This woman is, is married. The 10 coins were a wedding gift. The 10 coins were very valuable to this woman because the woman would treat those 10 silver coins as a, as a wedding ring. And I don't know if any of you women, I remember Lisa one time where she thought she lost her wedding ring. She panicked. She was, she was very upset. She started searching diligently until she found her ring. And it would be the same way with this woman in the first century Jewish culture who had these 10 silver coins as a wedding gift. 
If she lost one of them, she would be in a panic. And Jesus says this, the woman was distressed. She lost something very valuable. It's no wonder she kept looking and searching everywhere until she found it. And what did the woman do when she finally found that lost coin? It says, she will call in her friends and neighbors and says, rejoice with me because she found her lost coin. And Jesus says in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. When something lost has been found, it is time to celebrate. When the hopeless find hope, let's celebrate. Part of our own spiritual transformation happens when we get excited about the things that God gets excited about. Amen? God and His angels get excited when a sinner, when somebody who's far away from God turns around and comes back to God, comes into a saving relationship with Jesus. Let's be about making this place, this house of worship, this church, let's make this place a welcoming place where everyone can come in, they can find acceptance and grace and love, and they can have a safe place to begin a right relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's be that kind of a church. So what are our action points for this week? The first action point that we have, the takeaway to say, okay, what am I supposed to do with this message? I've heard about Matthew and his calling turning his life around following Jesus and this party, the attitude that Jesus had toward people who are far away from God. What am I supposed to do with this today? The first thing that we need to do is, number one, let's see people the way Jesus sees them. Let's, when you lock eyes with somebody, try to have the same attitude towards somebody that Jesus has toward them. Bob Goff just tweeted something this week. Bob Goff's a great Christian speaker and writer. And he says, if you ever lock eyes with somebody that matters to God and you don't treat them like they're very important, you might as well be like somebody who turns wine back into water. That's pretty, that's pretty stiff. Let's see people the way Jesus sees them. Lisa and I were in the car the other day. We came across this song by Matthew West. I think the words of this song encapsulates the idea of let's see people the way Jesus sees them. Please turn.
You and I, sometimes we see nothing but wounded people. We see nothing but damaged goods. We see something that's broken. And God says, you know what? I can make all things new. I see potential in that person. I see what that person can become. God always sees us for what we can become, not just where we are right now. Amen? So let's see people the way Jesus sees people. That's the first action point. The second action point is to invest and invite. Invest and invite. I, I know no greater illustration than this particular tool that we can use. It's a tool to invite. It is a, an invite card that tells people a little bit about our church, that tells people about the activities that we have starting this next weekend, starting Saturday when there's an Easter egg hunt for the kids at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, starting with a Palm Sunday service where in every weekend service, our own resident artist, Brian Hart, is going to be painting live while we talk about Jesus being the Lamb. So if you know somebody who's artistic, invest and invite them to be here for this next Palm Sunday weekend. And then, of course, to celebrate the resurrection, the victory over sin and death, where Jesus becomes the grave robber on Easter Sunday. I hope that you will do that. Invest and invite. And then number three, when the people do finally show up, how are we going to treat them? Let's treat them. Let's make this a safe place. Let's make this a welcoming place of love and grace and warmth where people can hear a life-changing message, where they can believe the gospel message that we're talking about because they see it lived out in your life and in my life. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's close with a word of prayer. Let's bow our heads and go to the Lord together. You know, the good news of today is that somebody like Matthew, who may have been, quote, a notorious sinner in his time, somebody who turned away from his own people, that somebody like that could find new life, could find forgiveness, somebody who was on the outside came to be on the inside of God's family and one of Jesus' greatest followers because of the grace of Christ in his life. What about you today? Maybe you're like someone like Matthew. Have you been checking out Jesus and the Christian faith from afar? Do you like what you're learning about him so far? Do you, would you rather not be on the outside? Would you rather be in God's family? I think Jesus wants you to be in today. I think he wants you to join his family forever. And the truth is that God is love and he's grace and his love is directed toward you. You can respond today in faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. You can be in God's family. If you want to be in God's family, if you want to say yes to Jesus, just pray this prayer with me this morning. It's say, Lord Jesus, I recognize that I might be somewhat on the outside now. I'm looking in and I'm seeing if this life of following you is really something for me. Lord, today I say yes to you. I want to be in your family. Thank you, Lord, for paying for all my sins when you died on the cross. And God, please forgive me for all the wrong things that I've said and done. Today, Lord, today I put my trust in you. I ask you to come into my heart. Bring me into God's family. Forgive me of all my sins. And help me from this day forward to follow you all the days of my life. Help me to learn what it means to be 
more like you and less like my old self. Begin that work of transformation in me today. And I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.